0: Welcome back to the Maui Nokawe Magazine and Silver Shark Media Podcast. I'm Jason Evans of Silver Shark Media. As always, we thank you for tuning in today and encourage you to subscribe and download to the podcast series. I'd like to welcome our next guest, wildlife biologist Che Frosto. Che, thanks for taking the time to chat today.
1: Ah, oh, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So I met Che a couple of years ago at the celebration of the arts event that the Ritz-Carlton puts on every year. And Che is the founder of Advanced Wildlife Education. So I guess mm-hmm. the first question I have is, can you explain to our audience what Advanced Wildlife Education is?
1: Yeah. So I worked for the Maui Nui Seabird Recovery Project. I was a field technician with them working mainly with the Wedgetail Shearwaters or the waukani. So these birds, they can dive 200 feet underwater and sleep in five at the same time, but they burrow on the beach and we did a lot of outreach events and we had some people putting like trash in the burrows or collapsing them because they thought they were like rats or mongoose. So uh, once they found out seabirds, they got really excited and wanted to help. So uh, that was like my aha moment. That's when I realized that education was most important. And I've also always loved to draw. So I just kind of combined my passions. I started my own side business, uh, creating educational coloring books. So for different native Hawaiian species, uh, just talking with a lot of people, I realized that they didn't know that Hawaii is the extinction capital of the world. So there's more endangered species there than anywhere else. So I thought that uh, people want to help, but they can't protect what they don't know exists. So I just kind of started my own business and yeah, started creating my own uh, books, started selling them at the swap meets. They're mainly coloring books. They have like fun facts, diet status, there's photographs about them. Also different other products, so like t-shirts, but uh, they all incorporated native species.
0: Which is awesome, and I think, you know, I, I produce an educational TV series with Philippe Cousteau that is all mm-hmm. earth science-based, and, and the one thing we come across is science communication is so important because, mm-hmm. as you said, not everyone's going to gonna read the thesis papers, they're not going to read the, the two-year studies, but they will mm-hmm. respond to different avenues on facts. And if they can learn a little bit about cause and effect on these species that you know, whether they be lovable-looking birds or or, or fish mm-hmm. they can't even see. If, if they can learn just a little bit about them, it, it does have an impact. Um, so I, yeah. I think it's it's really awesome that you kind of took this sort of biology background and you know added on a layer of basically being a science communicator through something like coloring books.
1: Yeah, I felt like uh, I could be more of like a bridge between the community and nonprofits. And yeah, I had a, I had a really good story. Um, there was a grandma and she bought a book for her six-year-old granddaughter. And she bought the book for her and the granddaughters was going through the book, like all vacation, just coloring. And then she got really interested and uh, told her family at dinner that she wanted to be a wildlife biologist when she grew up. So then she started going on the internet and watching all these different videos of different species, but then she saw the video with the turtle with the straw in its nose, so mm-hmm. um, that, really, that really hit her. And she went around the condo, collecting all the cans and recycling them, so they couldn't hurt any more turtles anymore. And her grandma came back and she came back and they told me the story. And it was just, that was, yeah, that was a really nice moment, just kind of reaching the next generation of uh, like biologists.
0: That's awesome. And I, I think it certainly mm-hmm. has to instill a sense of pride, like you said, on, on kind of seeing you know, just these little impacts that, that your work can have. So let, mm-hmm. let's backtrack a little bit. What is your background in biology, first of all?
1: I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. I studied biology and environmental studies. Uh, and then worked for the Forest Service uh, Northern California on the ecology team. So like class in uh, National Forest, And then in, that's when I got the internship next. I applied and I got the one in with the AmeriCorps internship, uh, Kupu. And then that's what got me with the Seabird Recovery Project.
0: So you, you did so. an internship with Maui Nui Seabird Recovery in 2014, and then you got hired full time a year later. So what what was mm-hmm. that experience like for you? What was that? Walk me through kind of the initial first days in the field as an intern and then mm-hmm. going into this is your full time job and you're really sinking your teeth into into these projects.
1: Yeah, no, it was a great experience because uh, that's about my second job outside of outside of school so I was just new to the island new to all different species right off the bat So in the fall is when the seabirds are fledging and they get distracted by the lights and all come start like falling out of the sky because uh they get confused so a big part of our job was go and like pick them up and release them back to sea so that was that was an amazing part of the job and that that's probably my favorite part. Um, just handling the birds and firsthand, just releasing them back to the ocean. There's a lot of field work. So we did a lot of work on um, Kiki Nui, the Waukani or the Wau or Hawaiian petrels. So we set up like cameras. So those are, yeah, it was really beautiful up there, uh, working up there.
0: What's one thing, or maybe it's more than one thing, but what's one thing about uh, seabirds here on Maui that you think might surprise people if they knew?
1: So when I do events, I'm always telling people, but I think they most get shocked about how far down they can dive. So when they're going after prey, they can dive 200 feet underwater, and then also they're able to turn off half their brain and just kind of like sleep and fly at the same time. And they sound like crying babies. So at night, a lot of people be on the beach and they'll hear these birds calling. They sound like crying babies. So there's in the past there's been people that have called the like police and they do like a whole search and rescue, and then they find out that it's just like the bird. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then you also talked about sort of their burrowing habitat of that. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people think these holes are whether it be large crabs or rats or mongooses. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what kind of um, homes do they make for themselves here along the coastlines?
1: Yeah. So they yeah they burrow um, in the beach. So when we would do banding, I put my whole arm in. So maybe sometimes around like six feet, I came and touch the back or three feet deep. Um, so that's why they're really awkward on land walking around because their legs are farther back on their body for like swimming and, uh, digging. So, but yeah, they all just kind of burrow because before the only native mammals is the monk seal and the bats, so all these animals and seabirds had, uh, you no know, predators so they can walk around on the dirt without any fear.
0: And is that why, you know, when you get into, you talk about, you know, Hawaii being one of the, you know, the endangered species capital, uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of these birds, what, has led to that
1: the introduction of mongoose uh, rats attack the eggs feral cats have been a huge problem too with a lot of the seabird colonies just because they're yeah they're above ground they have no defense mechanisms um also like dogs off leashes Mm -hmm. and then for like the forest birds uh, mosquitoes are a big problem as well so it's just a lot of introduced species and there's constantly just new species coming in um every day which is a huge problem for them to just kind of keep up uh, it's just islands are really fragile ecosystems.
0: Yeah. And it's all very interconnected, you know, food web and, and ecosystem web of, of cause mm-hmm. and effect for sure. So, mm-hmm. you know, you travel around to lots of different events. Um, you do Mary Monarch, I believe, each year. I mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, we, we connected at Celebration of the Arts, which is a, a large event here in West Maui. Mm-hmm. What's been the response from people who come to your display area and learn for the first time, you know, what you're doing?
1: yeah i mean a, a big reaction i get is um because people are really interested in this stuff but there's not the information that's really out there so when they come on the plane they're like there should be more information on the plane to learn about the different species or um like what's native what's not native so a lot of times people see like the minor birds and the cattle grits and think that they're native species and then they learn about all these other birds and they're like oh where can i see these like, how oh, they're really endangered like they're Really high up, like higher elevation, like deeper in the forest and Haleakala. So they just want to learn more, and it's hard for them to find the information that's out there. So, so I'm trying to provide to educate both tourists and local about the species that are here. In the whole world, they're only here on Hawaii.
0: Yeah, I, I think one important thing to note too is you've made these books in Hawaiian Alelo. You've uh-huh. gotten them translated into Japanese. What was the inspiration providing different versions of these books? Um, to cater to have different language translations. Yeah,
1: those ones I worked with uh, Kalamaku Uh I just wanted to reach a larger audience and I, I would go to Mary Monarch and a lot of people would say, "Oh, you should get this translated and they just wanted to to do it, get in O'lelo, and be able to supply that information to more of a local uh, Olelo community.
0: As we say, you travel around the different events. Mm-hmm. You know, this year in particular uh, has, to, has been a challenging year for anybody, but particularly majority of events, specifically after March, have been canceled. So wh- what has 2020 been like for you as you, you know, have, I'm sure, kind of a, a schedule in place earlier in the year um, mm-hmm. to go about promoting these messages? What has this year been like for you, and, and how has it impacted your life in terms of advanced wildlife education?
1: yeah this year was definitely um when it happened when all the shows started getting cancelled, I was actually out in California at the Fred Hall show um so it was the first time doing this show, and they're saying it was about half attendance and right after that show, if it was a week later, it would have been canceled, so I hurried up and got back to uh Maui, but that's when we learned about like Mary monarch being canceled and that's that's one of my favorite shows to go to every year it's, it would have been my third year. Um, I was planning on going to the Denver Outdoor Retailer Show, and there's just all these expo shows that I was going to do has been canceled, um, so that was pretty tough. And then my day-to-day, I usually do the Maui Swap Meet, um, the Gateway Craft Fair shows. So I do cut, cut like Fourth Friday. Um, so a whole bunch of different shows around the island. So usually that would be the majority of my sales was um, just in person from my table at these shows and expos and wholesale. So having a transition was... I've been meaning to do it, but just being kind of forced to like uh, transition fully to online sales and do social media has been uh, it's, it's been a challenge, but it's it's been necessary.
0: Yeah, and I, I uh, think definitely it's you know in this podcast we hear from lots of businesses we've had a lot of forced adaptation, right? Of of things <laughs> that um, were, were not part of the original plan, but sort of been you know pushed on everybody pretty quickly. So what have been you know, when you talk about pivoting to sort of an online market for the moment, what have been some things that have worked for you, and what would have been some challenges in that process? Yeah,
1: so definitely with the education aspect, I've had some teachers buy uh, the books for their students, so it's been a good way for like visual learners, especially um, kind of like a workbook since they can't go into school as much. The Lanai uh, Foundation buy books for their students, so they'd kind of hand them out uh, at the food drives. Uh, and then I've been targeting more like homeschooling since that's becoming a huge uh, market now, especially been trying to go towards uh, homeschooling and getting more into the education system as well.
0: How challenging is that getting into the education system? Because I, I, I know from firsthand experience, education systems, mm-hmm. a lot of times will have their own curriculum books in place. Sometimes you mm-hmm. try to introduce some new material that can cause, uh, you know, ripple effects that that are resisted a little bit. So You know, what's it been like trying to weave, you know, your materials into part of, you know, whether it be lesson plans or just additional resources for classrooms or students to utilize, especially now, like you said, during a time when there's a lot of distance learning going on, there's a lot of homeschooling going on. Yeah, so it's,
1: I've been trying to do it for a while now, uh, getting to the school system and going to like teacher's day. Um, I go into classrooms all the time from like elementary school to high school, doing like presentations and stuff and just trying to meet people to uh, figure out how to do the curriculum. It's still an ongoing process of trying to get into the school system. It's been kind of challenging.
0: One thing you've spent a lot of time on is to progress. You talked about, um, or you've told me, you know, before, from books to creating an app. So, <laughs> so tell me what what's that process been like, and why you felt an app would be kind of the next logical step in reaching a, a bigger audience.
1: So, not knowing uh, when I'd be able to do the shows again, and I've been wanting to do this coloring book app for a while, now it's just I've never really had the the time to on top of doing new books and the shows and just getting orders out of actually spending time on creating this app. So these last two months have just been doing it pretty much every day, all day, 10 in the morning to 3 a.m. in the morning, just working on this app. So kind of transitioning all my books digitally. Uh, So I have like 14 different books on there. So it's the same concept as my paper books, but now it's available for everybody that can just download the app and um, especially if like I'm thinking like students and uh, their parents and teachers. So it's a good resource that they don't have to pay for like, like if I was to ship out the books, not to pay for like shipping or um, it's just right there sure. and it's accessible to everybody. And just getting that information and education is just really important for me. So I'm pivoting and kind of seeing where the market's going and kind of where the future is going with like social distancing and um, schools the way they are like I mean, most people have a phone, so they're able to download an app and, yeah, just color, relax, ed- get educated. Um, it's just kind of a all around good thing that I think a lot of people need.
0: Well, especially you know as your audience continues to grow, this is certainly a technology generation. So the more ability students have to access things at their fingertips, whether it be on a phone or an iPad or a computer, um, mm-hmm. you know they take advantage of it when they can. So you know I think it's a good a good way, as you said, especially when you're unable to do the in person you know, swap meet or event sort of interaction. So one of the silver linings we've we've kind of seen during 2020, and we've we've had a couple other biologists on as as well earlier in this podcast series has been the environment has gotten a little bit of a break from out here in Hawaii, you know, overcrowded mm-hmm. beaches, tons of boats in the water at all times. Do you think this is sort of a, a wake up call for environmental protection in a way? And especially in mm-hmm. a place like Hawaii where you have so many endangered bird species. Maybe a more managed tourism system on on how we use our waters and and our beaches.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, just the way I think the ocean just everything's kind of needs time to breathe. And uh, I'd just be on the beach sometimes. i just see like people just lathered in sunscreen and just jump inside, and you can kind of just see it all like in the water. So I think not having that many people in there would really just kind of give a break to the reefs. And just not as many people hiking, going off trail.
0: What are some ways that people, um, especially people who, who live here in Hawaii, what are some ways they could maybe recognize how to help some of these seabird populations that are around the island? Yeah.
1: So actually, right now um, is their fallout season. So that would that used to be a big part of my job was to reach out to the community and let people know. So a lot of times the birds will be under bright lights. Mm-hmm. So if they can be on the lookout for those and then call the maui new seabird recovery project if you found a, d- a down bird and just put it in a cardboard box and then call them and we can pick them up so that's always been a huge huge part that we always do a lot of community outreach for the birds just so that we can get them back out to sea because it's, it's a lot of the fledgings it's their first time so it just yeah. gets really confused really bright light so yeah having it shining up in the sky can be pretty confusing for them
0: are there parts of the island that happens more than others yeah.
1: So you, the mating colonies are in, you have Havea, Cam 3, and Hokipa. So mainly around Lahaina, kind of Pali, we've gotten a lot of birds. And then along the along Kihei, mainly around the coast uh, right there. So when they take off, it'll be the bright lights and they kind of come back. So mainly at the like hotels along the coast, uh, awesome. we have a lot of bright lights.
0: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great advice and, and great information from people out there if, if they do run into that sort of instance. It's not uncommon for one and number two, to, to get in touch with the Maui Nui Seabird recovery people. So, mm-hmm. well, Chad, mm-hmm. thank you so much for all the work you've done. Um, as I said, I can't stress enough how important it is to have leaders like you that put resources out for students to learn about the ecosystems in a very fun way. Um, and I think your your books are a way, especially for younger students, to really connect to nature and not feel like they're being hit on the head with a textbook um, and I think that mm-hmm. that's huge. I think that really is where you have an ability to to really get students to embrace your message versus feeling like they're being lectured to a bit. So tell me about, you know, how many books do you have and where mm-hmm. can people find these books if they want to order some, whether it be for their own children, whether if they're in the education uh, realm, if they want to order them for a classroom or a school library How would they go about finding what books you have and how to order them?
1: Yeah, so I have uh, 14 books. I have uh, three on Hawaii's. I have one that's more diverse. I have uh, Malcolm MacKay. I have uh, two books on seabirds. I have uh, Sierra Nevada, Pacific Northwest. I have one on Sharks and Rays, Marine Mammals more popular like a newer one is on uh, dinosaurs and then even the history on different dog breeds now I have one on those they're all on my website so it's advancedwildlifeeducation.org I also have uh, Instagram and Facebook so yeah that's been another one that's growing uh, social media during this time as well so uh, Instagram's been just working on that and posting this content uh, non-stop
0: and how would people Uh, find you what would your tag be on Instagram?
1: Uh, It'd be advanced underscore wildlife underscore education.
0: So that's your website, your Instagram, your Facebook. And then if we shift to your app, how would people find your app?
1: Yeah. So I have it on uh, Apple and Android. It's a wildlife educational coloring book and uh, advanced wildlife education.
0: Perfect. And then in all your studies and all your time in the field, what is your favorite local animal? I'm going to guess it's a bird species, but what is your favorite (laughs) local animal and why?
1: Definitely the wild cunny or the, the wedge-tailed shearwater. So the main bird I worked with, just because they're just so just awkward on land, they just they sound like crying babies, and they're just really goofy, and they just have a, a special place in my heart. Just working with them, and yeah, it's my first bird I worked with. So definitely the wedge-tailed shearwater.
0: Awesome. Well, head out to advancedwildlifeeducation.org to learn more, or check Shay out on, as he said, Instagram or Facebook. Thank you so much again for for taking the time. I, I do appreciate it, and I wish you all the best with your new app and all your work going forward.
1: Great. Thank you so much.